KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. The Supreme Court recently heard arguments in two cases challenging affirmative action policies at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. Attorney Patrick Strawbridge, who is representing the group Students for Fair Admissions in the UNC case, said the university is making race too much of a factor in admissions. The assumption that race necessarily informs something about anyone's qualifications is antithetical to this court's precedents and to our Constitution. But North Carolina Solicitor General Ryan Park, who represented UNC, said race can make significant difference in a student's experience. We think that it can in context on an individualized basis, perhaps not in every case, but in some cases, uh, give important information about where that person is coming from, what their experiences have been. And everyone was watching to see what the court's newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, would have to say. How is race being used in this process? You keep saying we object to the use of race standing alone. But as I read the record and understand their process, it's never standing alone. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Matt Leon, and I wanted to know just how much of an impact these cases could have on college admissions and what the oral arguments telegraphed about what the justices may eventually decide. Our guest is Dr. Susan Liebel, professor of political science at St. Joseph's University. To set the table, when we talk about the Supreme Court dealing with affirmative action here in this session, we are talking there are actually two separate cases before them that were heard on the same day. Am I correct? Uh, you you absolutely are. And uh, re-listening to them today, it was a, it's a long five hours. Uh, they were looking at two cases. One is Students for Fair Admissions versus the President and Fellows of Harvard. And the other is also Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina. And in both those cases, the admissions policies of the two universities um, are being challenged. Harvard's a private university, so it's being charged with violating Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which says schools can't receive federal funds if they discriminate on the basis of race. And the UNC lawsuit also actually was more focused on a violation of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection of the law because UNC is a state institution. And the lower courts have ruled in favor of Harvard and the University of North Carolina holding that the programs used race in a sufficiently limited way to fulfill compelling interests involving creating diversity on campuses. So in this case, these two questions are now, does the Supreme Court agree with the lower courts? And just for context purposes, how unusual is this to have like multiple cases dealing with the the same concept, but at two kind of two different levels, if you will, uh, at the same time? Was this done by design? Is this just coincidence? Uh, it, it happens sometimes that court the court gets cases that are similar and they put them together. And initially they did put these two cases together. They split them apart because uh, Justice Katanji Brown Jackson said in her confirmation hearings that she would recuse herself in the Harvard case because she'd recently served on Harvard's Board of Overseers. So, so then the court split them. They put the UNC case first. She participated in the two hours and 40 minutes of that case. Then she stepped out of the room and the other eight justices 
argued the Harvard case. So normally it's an hour each, but in this case, there were more than just the two sides. The Solicitor General for the United States was also allowed to present based on the fact that the government was claiming that there was a national security interest in the ability of the military academies to use their approach to admissions, which is similar to UNC and Harvard's. So you kind of you touched on this in the beginning, but to break this down, basically the plaintiffs in these cases are looking to get rid of affirmative action, right? Yeah. So both of these universities have something like 40 things that they look at. And one of them is if you volunteer your race, they will look at that as part of the 40 things. So the plaintiffs in the case are saying that all racial classifications of any kind are wrong and that what the Constitution says based on the 14th Amendment following the Civil War is that we can't talk about race. We need race neutrality. And they say that, you know, once we got to Brown versus Board of Education, once we said that you can't have segregation, that where we should have gone was prohibiting the Constitution's use of race in any way, shape, or form. The Students for Fair Admissions are making that argument that both UNC and Harvard need to get rid of race completely. And that the last precedent, Grutter, uh, said, like, you know, in 25 years, we should see this gone. And it's it's not 25 years later, but it should be gone now. Okay. And we can see that, like, Thomas, Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, they all seem to agree with that it's time to get rid of any consideration of race. The other side, UNC and Harvard and the U.S. government are saying, okay, look, diversity is, you know, our nation's greatest source of strength. And the Reconstruction Amendments understood that, you know, we had a really difficult history of racial discrimination and we're living in this very pluralistic place. And what we need is people of all different backgrounds and perspectives living together and uniting in a kind of common purpose. And we need education to be that sort of engine of democracy. We we need Harvard and UNC to be places where, you know, people come together and they talk and they assemble and they see each other. And so what UNC and Harvard are doing is they're not discriminating on the basis of race. They're doing something that the Supreme Court said previously in Grutter, they're creating a diverse learning environment for all students. They're not remedying discrimination. They're not setting aside quotas. What they're simply saying is that we want a diverse student body, and that's our the compelling state interest. We've put together something that includes these 40 things, and it is in some ways race conscious, but it's not racial discrimination, and it's perfectly constitutional. And Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson all seem to be supportive of of that approach. Really quick, I think everybody has heard and has a general idea of affirmative action. Can you just quickly kind of give us what it does kind of in the legal realm and what it means and what falls under its purview? So I think most people think about affirmative action and they think of 
the way we used to talk about an affirmative action in the 1970s, which is that uh, in University of California versus Baki, they had a medical school and they tried to set aside a certain number of seats for what they said were economically disadvantaged people. Now, that kind of like setting aside seats has been wiped out by the Supreme Court. So you're not allowed to do that anymore. But what Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, a conservative Republican justice, said in Grutter was, it is an interest of the universities to have diversity. So if they consider it alongside other things, it's okay. So the kinds of things they look at are, are you a first-generation student? Socioeconomic levels. Did you go to school in Oklahoma? So for example, Penn will give a bump to somebody from Oklahoma or Texas, as opposed to New Jersey or New York, because they're trying to create geographic diversity. So these, these 40 things are assessed, what they call holistically. So you don't get points for your race. You don't get a set aside for your race. But in terms of taking a look at all of the things that make you a good or bad candidate or a better candidate. Maybe none of these people are really bad for some of these places. Race is one of the things, and it's voluntary. They can't ask you. You have to offer it up on your application. So that that's what they mean by affirmative action here. It's It's really not the same as the way we used to talk about it in the past. And it's interesting to me, you know, you talked about how we should be race neutral. You didn't talk, but that's what the, the conservative justices were pushing. And that seems very, very Pollyanna-ish in the idea that, you know, well, of course, in a perfect world, everybody wants to be judged on who they are as a person and what they've done. And But that's not how the world works. We still, you know, there are still barriers for women. There are still barriers for people of color. Like, you don't have to dig hard to see them. Is that and I don't, I don't want you to get into the, the heads of these justices. Do you think they honestly believe that? Is that just the conservative mindset that they want to believe that everything is fine and we're, we're past the idea where racism is a problem? So, um, you know, I recently read a biography of uh, Chief Justice Roberts and, and a lot about things that he said over the course of his career. And I think he does believe it. He honestly and sincerely believes in a colorblind society. Now, that in part may come from his position in society as a white, cis, Midwestern man who probably didn't suffer too much discrimination based on his sex or gender um, or race. And I think that a lot of this boils down to how you see the history of the United States. So I think for liberals, they look and they see, look, for most of American history, most industries, professions, and sectors were designed to exclude on the basis of race and gender, sometimes class as well. So white men, men racialized as white, were in positions of power. When Justice O'Connor graduated second in her class, second in her class from Stanford Law School, she couldn't get a job as a lawyer. Now, that's mind-blowing, right? But that was the situation when she graduated in the 1950s, I think. So she was extremely conscious of the ways in which gender discrimination were threaded into the structures of society. If the positions of power are designed this way, it's not, it's a feature, it's, it's not a bug. And there were always people challenging this, but until the mid 1950s, 1960s, it, it really was accepted. 
And Brown versus Board of Education does kind of blow that up and say, you know, segregation in and of itself is a harm. And, and I think that for many of the conservatives, removing laws that say we discriminate is enough, not looking at the statistics of you know, what happens when you apply for a bank account and your name is Hispanic versus your name is kind of generically uh, white. And so you know, we have a lot of research that shows that the very same application will be viewed very, very differently. And, and that is not that's not the kind of information that the conservative justices are looking at. They're looking for there to be no rule that says we're discriminating. And you could really see that throughout the oral arguments of this constant fighting about, but isn't there still discrimination? Do you see this breaking 6-3 and 6-2 and in the case that Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson isn't sitting on? Could we be surprised do you feel like the die is cast here? You know, Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh both asked some questions where I thought, huh, okay, you're at least listening and picking up on some uh, discrepancies in the case. So I actually found Kavanaugh and Barrett to be uh, very good questioners. That doesn't mean that they'll vote with the liberals, but they were asking certain questions. I think the Harvard case is the one where the justices might strike down affirmative action. The UNC case, honestly, as the UNC laid out what it was doing, it really didn't seem like using racial classifications in any way that would violate the 14th Amendment. However, I don't actually think the arguments matter anymore. And and I used to. I, I used to be somebody who really thought that they were arguing and they were listening and they were obeying precedents. But I think most court watchers already know that this is a conservative supermajority. It was created by three Republican presidents. And I think that there are six justices who don't like affirmative action, and I think there's a good chance that we'll see it overturned. And I think that has some consequences because the American public is increasingly seeing the Supreme Court as political and also disapproving of them. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Susan Liebel right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. A Philadelphia dentist today was sentenced to 22 years in prison and fined $100,000. This was just unbelievable. You gotta understand the genius in Larry. Nobody was doing coke at this point. No one could believe that this highly educated, young, handsome man was this kingpin drug dealer. This is Wolves Among Us, the Larry Lavitt story. A documentary podcast from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Listen now on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with St. Joseph's University Professor of Political Science, Dr. Susan Liebel. In layman's terms, let's say they it does go the direction you think it's going to go, and and this is overturned. I'm hard having a hard time getting my head around what kind of would that mean because these universities, as you say, most of them want this diversity and. So how does this change life? How could it change life? Is it not quite clear how it would play out or what the ripple effects would be? Kind of where what what are we seeing with that? Well, over the five hours, it became pretty clear what would happen, which would be that there 
would be no consideration of race in the application, except to the extent that a student might write to say, I grew up in rural Kansas and I was the only Hispanic student in my class and that was really hard and isolating and I had to be gritty and determined in order to get along with people. So you could write that in your essay, but you couldn't check a box anywhere on the application that said that you were Latinx. So it would eliminate all identification of race. It would eliminate the ability of the university to consider race in any way as they did their admissions. So the question is then, well, what's what's at stake? Well, so this would really change how we admit students to universities. It could impact the diversity of leaders that we have in corporate America, in medicine, in scientific research, Uh, The U.S. government was arguing that it would be critical to national security because the officer corps and the military are also generated with a very, very similar approach. It could impact recruitment and retention. So, for example, the Coast Guard, if the Coast Guard Academy has 30 to 35 percent women, women actually stay and finish. If the number is lower than that, they don't. Why? You know, it's really isolating when you're at an institution where there aren't people like you. So this could really affect recruitment for universities, retention, what kind of discussions you have in the classroom, whether you have affinity groups on campus, you know, a Black student union that's bringing in a certain kind of set of speakers to speak on certain issues that are of interest to them. You know, will it create more insularity? I don't know. That, that's the claim, that this is what would happen. The counter to that would be that there are nine states that have made it impossible to use race in the holistic review. Florida, California, Michigan, Washington, and a couple others. And they have had different results. In some cases, they have managed other ways of bringing in a diverse student body. And in other cases, they've struggled. The most elite places, Berkeley, UCLA, have struggled. And the number of Black students has gone down fairly significantly, again, depending on who you ask to define significantly. And I guess I want to say something personal. You know, I've been te- I've taught at a lot of different universities, places like Rutgers, where it's an incredibly diverse classroom. And there's many different Latinx students in the class and they don't agree. And so when there's a discussion, what you have is a lot of views and it isn't like, you know, hi, I'm the one Latinx student and I'm speaking for all of Latinx humanity. At St. Joseph's, sometimes I'm in a classroom that is very homogenous and sometimes in a classroom that's quite diverse. It really does affect the kind of discussions you have. It affects me as the faculty member as to whether I have to express a, a position that's not being taken naturally as flowing from the conversation. It often leads to people staring at the one Black student in the room who might say as if that person's job is to sort of portray the Black view of the world. And so it it's very hard to measure this right, to to put, to quantify it. And I think that from the right, the hope is that you can do this other ways. So for example, you can have pipeline programs. Harvard can go around to more schools and make the pitch. Why don't you apply to Harvard? It could even mentor people towards that. I, I believe that that would qualify. So perhaps there are more 
race neutral ways to still have a diverse student body. And there certainly has been some success in some of these places that got rid of looking at race in admissions. We're basically taking away, like on the application, the line where you would plug in what your race is and you would still put the application in. And like you said, if you write an essay where you talk about your background, that that's fine. If a school wants to be diverse and wants to make it work, I would think you could make it work. Like, is there like a, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of missing like the enforcement part of this. Like if a school wants all different viewpoints, yes, that might make it harder taking that block away, but you could still make it happen. You're not going to be punished for, for going out of your way to do that. Well, you could be punished. And I think UNC and Harvard might be punished because the enforcement mechanism is that the man who's behind these court cases, and, and we should be clear, these are not naturally coming up out of the, you right. know, uh, Students for Fair Admissions is funded by Edwin Bloom. He's a conservative activist who has previously spearheaded uh, litigation limiting the Voting Rights Act. He's seen by many people as an anti-civil rights activist, and he's targeted programs, both private and public, that address any race-conscious approach as racism. So if we're race conscious, if we do what you just said, don't we want to have like a racially diverse campus? He would call that racism. So I think that's the punishment. There's a lot of money behind Students for Fair Admissions that would challenge a university. You never have to indicate your race. It's always an option and it's never a requirement. You can use some proxies. Obviously, you can look at geography. You can guess at things. I mean, people can guess that a student from a particular uh, school district in Detroit that they know to be 95% African-American is likely to be African-American, but that leaves them guessing, and it's not about what the student is telling them. So you're you're right. There's other things they can do, and that was asked about a lot. Uh, somebody asked, you know, could you ask people whether or not your family was previously enslaved in the United States. And there was a lot of tension about that question. Some people said, absolutely not. What happened to your great-great-grandparents doesn't matter. And some people on the court said, yeah, it sure does. So you maybe could use some proxies, and they, they fought about that. And if this does go the way you seem to think it would go, and this is overturned, this would be another major precedent that is overturned in the span of a year or two with this conservative supermajority. Is there any pause, you think, on the court, on the right, for what this does to the credibility? Do you feel like there's any cognizance of that? Or for some of these justices, is this just their moment in the sun and they don't care what anybody thinks and they think they're the smartest person in the room and everybody should be listening? A couple of the justices, conservative justices, seemed to float ways for the court not to decide some of these issues. You know, for example, they could decide in both these cases, but they could not overturn Grutter. So they they had options. Um, overturning Grutter and overturning Baki is the most extreme version, but there are ways for them to strike down really small elements of what UNC and Harvard are doing, such that it would allow universities to then react and figure out ways to work within that framework. 
Look, I, I do, I'm a political scientist and I'm increasingly convinced that the nine people on the court are on the court for political reasons. And particularly the six conservative justices were put there to overturn Roe v. Wade, which they have, overturn the Heller case on the Second Amendment, which they have. And affirmative action was yet another really important piece of that. And so I don't think we should be surprised when that actually happens. All the talk about following precedent usually ends when it is that people just don't particularly like a policy. And, you know, to go back to something you said earlier, I really think that sincerely, Matt, the conservative justices don't see racial injury and harm the way you do. They see a zero-sum fight over seats at UNC and they see racial injury in even considering among 40 things somebody's race. And liberals are assuming racial diversity is necessary to education and that there isn't a harm, there's an improvement for all if the makeup of the classroom is more diverse, if there are more voices and conversations. And you know, there was this kind of amazing moment I thought in the case when Clarence Thomas said something that's been quoted a lot in the media, you know, I've heard the word diversity quite a few times. I don't have a clue what it means. And he said that, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what are the educational benefits? And the attorney, uh, his name is Park for UNC said, this is how we define diversity. You know, it's a broad set of criteria. It's, it's you know, he, he listed these things out and he also offered an example, which is that uh, in one of the briefs from the um, major American businesses brief, I think it's called, there was data on stock traders. And it turns out that you're a better stock trader if you've had education with other people of different types. Why? Well, they found that it reduces groupthink. So people actually disagree and they talk things out and they have more extended discussions and they make better decisions and they make more money. Now, it was interesting because Clarence Thomas just said like, that's fine. He just, he walked away from that fact. So I, I think for the right, this notion of colorblindness is really what America is supposed to be and what we should be aspiring to. And we should be done with thinking about race at all. And I think from the left, there is this quest to establish why it is that a diverse environment would produce a different kind of leader. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.